Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, the regular podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. I'm Carl Truman, pastor of Cornerstone Presbyterian Church and William E. Simon, visiting fellow at Princeton University. And I'm here with my regular co-host, Amy Bird, the housewife theologian. Good to see you, Amy. Yeah, it's kind of good to see you, I guess. Yeah, we did have a glitch with the microphones earlier on where we couldn't (laughs) actually hear what Amy was saying. We realized how much the quality of the podcast would actually increase. You were sad. Oh, yeah, I was broken hearted. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, our other co-host, Todd Pruitt, can't be here today. Sadly, he's had a a death in his church, so he's off doing his pastoral and bereavement job this morning. But we do have a surprise guest, surprise to me anyway, because I've assumed for three or four years now that this person who kept contacting my email was merely an avatar for Amy Bird. It actually turns out that unless we have a very highly paid actress or a very sophisticated hologram on the show today, Amy Mantravadi does really exist. Amy is an online writer. She was born in Columbus, Ohio, raised in Muskegon, Michigan, currently resides in Dayton, Ohio. She has degrees in uh, political science and biblical literature from Taylor University and an MA from King's College London. But as a Cambridge grad, I won't necessarily hold that against her. She's worked for congressman. She's been a columnist and opinions editor for a student uh, newspaper. She's worked at the Egyptian press office in Washington, D.C., and is now a penniless writer. (laughs) And the reason we have Amy on today is she's just published an historical novel, The Girl Empress, The Chronicle of Maud. And we want to chat to Amy about the, the task of writing fiction and why we should buy this book. Good to have you with us, Amy. Well, thank you. It's a great honor to be with you. We know it is. We know it is. Your career will, I cannot explain to you how fantastic a boost this will be to your career. Uh, words, words fail me. Why did you get the idea to write this book? Well, some people, when they want to be novelists, they decide they want to write a story and then they say, I have to come up with something to write. I was sort of the other situation where I came across a story and found it so compelling that I said, wow, this seems like it should be a novel or a movie or something like that. And I thought it would be a really nice idea. And then I didn't do anything about it for a few years because I said, surely there's someone who's better qualified to do this than I am never having written a novel before. But then after a while, I got into a situation where my previous career that you mentioned with the Egyptian press office had pretty much died. So uh, God put me in a situation where I had little else going on. I said, if I'm ever going to make an attempt at writing a novel, then maybe this would be a good time to do that. But the reason I specifically wanted to write about Maud is because back when I was in college, I did a lot of research on my family history. And I realized that I was descended from her. 
And when I was going back through the records and saw this name, Empress Maud of England, I said, who is that? I didn't know that England even had empresses. So it seemed very odd to me. And a basic Google search for her showed that she led this really fascinating life. And that was when I felt a little robbed that none of my history teachers had ever mentioned her (laughs) in any of my classes. So that was what really got the ball rolling. And I admit that at the beginning, I really had no idea what I was doing, but uh, I knew that it was going to take a lot of time and it was going to be difficult. But as usually happens with projects of this nature, it ended up taking even more time and being even more difficult than I thought. But it's been very rewarding. And my goal was to really tell her story from her perspective. We have a lot of different historical records from that period, different chroniclers wrote about her, either people who were her allies or her enemies. And as a result, we know what a lot of other people said about her, but we have very little that she actually wrote apart from signing uh, various government documents. We have maybe one or two letters that she actually wrote. So my goal was to sift through all of that and try to determine what was she actually like as a person. And the best way I could think to portray that was to write a novel as if she was writing her own autobiography and to let her tell the story from her perspective rather than letting it be defined by a bunch of other people. So it was one of the crazier ideas I've had, but (laughs) I'm glad you had the idea. I'm, 93% through the Kindle version, and it's like a total page turner. I was away for the weekend with my family, and I kept sneaking away um, to read read the book. And then the whole car ride home, I'm like reading about Maud, and I'm totally ignoring my family. It's one of those books that, that captivate you like that. But I realized, too, there's just barely anything I know about this time period in the 12th century and all that's going on here and, and England and Germany and Italy and and I'm wondering as I've you know been pretty familiar with your blogging and your theological writing and and we've become friends uh, talking through Skype and online and it was interesting to see this part of you and as I was reading it I was just wondering how did you write all this in a convincing language of the time period. Adding in, you know, the different locations, Germany and Italy and England. Well, I suppose it will be up to the uh, medievalist and historical expert to decide how convincing I am as a 12th century woman. But one very odd thing that I decided to do early on when I was writing is not to use any words that had origins after 1500 A.D., And I did that to try to create a kind of vocabulary that would, even though people weren't aware of why it sounded more authentic, it might sound slightly more authentic to their ears. And also being American, I realized in constantly looking up the origins of the words I was using, how many of them are actually Americanisms. Mm -hmm. So I said, you need to get rid of all of those. So which I'm sure would make Carl happy. But (laughs) Mm -hmm. so I, yeah, that was sort of one thing that I did to try to achieve that. But 
most of it, yeah, was just kind of feeling my way along and playing with things until I figured out something that sounded somewhat authentic. But it is a little bit of a challenge because the way people want you to write novels nowadays is they usually want you to start right in the middle of the action, maybe even in the middle of a scene. They want Mm -hmm. you to be not focusing on lots of description, but constantly going from cliffhanger to cliffhanger. And I just did not feel that that would be authentic for someone who was writing their life story in the 12th century. There would be a lot more uh, easing into the story and a lot more description and things that maybe are not as interesting to us now. But as a result, there's a lot of historical detail in the book. It's definitely historical fiction. It's not just a fiction story that happens to take place in a historical setting. So it's sort of going to be a matter of personal opinion, whether people like that or not. And some of the feedback I received from the book, there are people who really love it because they don't get a lot of novels like that these days. They mostly get things that are more sensational and melodramatic. But there are some people who are like, you know, all these dukes and archbishops and, you know, it's, it's a difficult thing to wade through. But I think if you can get through it, it's very rewarding because you start to feel what it would have been like to really live in that period. And it may seem like not a point that's not very interesting what the situation was with the monasteries in the 12th century, but it was very important to people who lived then. So right, it was just a strategic decision I made that I wanted to write a little different kind of mm-hmm. novel. So hopefully if that ended up seeming authentic, then that's a success. So I'm pleased with yeah. that. Well, it also seems strategic to do to write it in Maud's point of view because, in a sense, you're getting the story behind the story when reading history to get this, you know, woman's point of view in the whole thing. And and throughout the book, I kind of notice an interplay of these, you know, questions about femininity and masculinity and, and a woman's place, even one who's in in such authority and esteem as Maud was. But then going to from the perspectives of, you know, a seven-year-old all the way up to how old is she when she's telling the story here? This book covers ages about six or seven to age 18. But she's also telling the story as an older woman. Right. She's writing it towards the end of her life and looking back to when she was young. So character occurs on page 397, um, Carla Vorms. If I had one criticism of the novel, it would be, I think you could have made more of him. Um, he kind of, I don't know, he seems like a very fascinating person who should perhaps have had, I don't know, at least six or seven chapters purely devoted to him. Could you talk about Carla Wurms a bit? As, uh... Well, I would be happy to talk about him and to fill all our listeners in on what's happening here. <laughs> so back around the time I was doing research for this book, I realized that I needed to learn more about medieval Christianity. So I looked for some kind of podcast or college course I could listen to that had to do with medieval Christianity. And lo and behold, the first one to pop up was by Dr. Carl Truman at Westminster Seminary, who I had no idea who he was. I really had no familiarity with Westminster Seminary. But it seemed like it was a good course, so I listened to it, and it was very helpful, although he didn't end up addressing one of the main things I had hoped he would address in the course. But, so I The wrote, investiture controversy. Yes, exactly. Yep. 
I remember you emailing me about yes. that. <laughs> so I basically contacted him and said, I really appreciated your course. And I did mention that he should have talked about the investiture controversy, which yes, is not of much interest to the average person, but was for me since I was doing my research. But I'm not sure what possessed me to do this. But for some reason, I said, yeah, I'm writing this novel. And because you were so helpful to me, I will make you a minor character in the novel. And I gave him three different options for how I could write him into the story. And he pretty much rejected all of them. And I actually have the quote right here of what he said. He said, I'd always rather fancied being the whiskey priest in the power and the glory. And (laughs) as a millennial, I said, what is he talking about? (laughs) So I did a quick search and found out that. So this is a book written by Graham Greene called The Power and the Glory, which actually is a very famous novel. And it's about. Maybe you can help me here, Carl. It's about this Roman Catholic priest who's like very persecuted by the Mexican government. And so he's like going into hiding and constantly drinking and whining. And basically when I <laughs> when I realized that this was basically Carl's dearest wish was to be an alcoholic <laughs> Catholic, I was admittedly very concerned for everyone in the OPC. And, but nevertheless, I said, I'll do my best. I'll see what I can come up with. So I wrote this character into the book called Carl of Verms, and he is a priest, and he does like drinking their version of whiskey. And I gave him something very heroic to do in the book. You did. I I feel, I was saying to Amy earlier, it's a little bit like the original Superman movie where Marlon Brando is only on the screen for a few minutes, but... He kind of dominates the whole thing. That's that's what I felt about this <laughs> yeah, character. Don't think so. But, uh, anyway, a less serious question, Amy. Do you consider yourself to be a Christian writer or a writer who happens to be a Christian when it comes to this book? And if, if you allow that distinction, how would you how would you parse it? That's a good question. And I would say in terms of this book, I'm definitely a writer who happens to be a Christian. It's not a specifically Christian novel, even though there are certainly, you read a lot about Christian history in the novel, and many of the characters are at least nominally Christian. But I started writing, it's going to be a series of three novels, and I started it a few years ago before I had really committed to writing for the church more seriously. So it's kind of interesting that I have my blog and the things that I write for the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals and other groups, and that that's all definitely about theology and Christian topics. But then I have this other thing I'm doing, which is not, it's certainly not anti-Christian, but it's not specifically Christian. Even so, I think there are some themes that come through that certainly are applicable to the Christian life. Yeah, it just, I was at a little different point in my life when I started writing these novels. And it's kind of funny that, you know, they're finally coming out now. And a lot of people who know me on Twitter or somewhere like that know me blogging about, you know, covenant theology or topics like that. So it's kind of nice to have something 
a little different and to have different kinds of writing that I can do, I still see myself primarily as a blogger and not a novelist, but it's been nice to have those two different worlds that I can live in. And, you know, within the Christian writing sphere, there are some limitations on what I can do as a woman, although I'm perfectly happy to live within those limitations, but it's kind of nice to have this other area where I can sort of be a little more creative and play around with that. So that's what I wonder. You know, historical fiction is is becoming a pretty popular genre and I like to read it. I have a lot of friends who like to read historical fiction and I'm definitely like have um, some friends of mine that I plan on giving your book to for Christmas. But as I'm reading historical fiction, I always wonder, you know, is it hard for the author? And as a reader, I wonder how much of this is historical and how much of this is fiction. So how do you decide on those things? I mean, we have this, you know, whiskey priest in here, obviously, who's um, a bunch of malarkey, but... (laughs) Good use of the word malarkey, first of all. (laughs) Um, Second of all, yeah, that with historical fiction being such a popular genre and you have Authors like Philippa Gregory is one who's been very successful writing mini novels about um, British royals over the years. And she's been pretty heavily criticized by certain historians for not being very accurate to the historical record and introducing different things that are more sensational. But, you know, at, at the same time, whenever you're sitting down to write a historical novel, you kind of have to make a judgment about how much am I going to try to adhere rigidly to the historical record and historical facts and how much am I going to allow myself freedom to introduce things that will help the story along. And because I'm covering Maud's entire life and because I decided that I wanted to be very, uh, rigidly adhering to the historical record that does limit what I can do in terms of building tension in the story and when you have certain climaxes in the action and obviously you want to get it to where every book can kind of end on a a bit of a cliffhanger and you want to build the action that way but you're kind of limited by what actually happened in the person's life and so what people will normally do is they will try to introduce other plot points that may or may not have actually happened to try to make it more dramatic. But obviously you have no choice but to introduce certain minor characters and minor plot points just to fill out the story because most of what we have from the 12th century are just legal records. We have a few uh, chronicles that were written by sort of early historians, but that's not enough to build a novel on. So you Mm -hmm. do have to introduce, um, You know, and for instance, one of the early scenes in the book is when she's very young and she has this tutor who's really a snob. And it's very conceivable that at that time she would have had someone who was her tutor, but the actual person and what he was like was something I just created. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you can imagine that she would have had various ladies in waiting and she would have had these different people around her, but we just don't have any record of who those people were. At the same time, uh, 
whenever I did find a record of someone who was in her household, I tried to make at least a mention of that person Mm -hmm. and tried to include them in the story. But I went to a lot of really great lengths to try to make sure that I was being as close to the historical record as possible. And my basic rule was that while I would have to add things to the historical record, I didn't want to ever contradict something mm-hmm. that we knew. So one of the That's big challenges, yeah, one of the big challenges with this book is that a lot of the action takes place in Germany. And so some of the sources are only in German. And unfortunately I do not speak German. Mm-hmm. So I would sit there with Google Translate, literally typing out word for word, like all, you know, entire paragraphs of text to try to get some kind of a translation I could use. But even then, a lot of the books I used were so old that Google could not translate all the words. So I had a friend who speaks German and I would ask her, what does this word mean? And she's like, I don't even know what that word means. That's not from modern German. That's like from old German. So there were a lot of hoops I had to jump through in order to try to stay close to the historical record. But at the same time, you would occasionally, it was like you were going on a treasure hunt and occasionally you would find something that no one had ever put in in any English Mm -hmm. book about Maud before. So if I could ever get some little detail like that, I felt like it was worth all the hours I was spending on going through all of these really old books. So, yeah. Novelists that have particularly inspired or helped you or that, whose work you admire and have tried to emulate? Yeah, that's another good question. And I wish I could tell you that I've read so many hundreds of novels, but the truth is that I usually read more nonfiction than fiction but i you know growing up i read a lot of the usual things you know tolkien and uh, jade austin and things like that but um one thing that has been a little helpful to me is i have i um have done some study of shakespeare's historical plays and even though they are from a different historical period than what i'm writing about i felt like the way that he was able to uh, tell those stories and and really bring out the personalities and the different themes of the period and make them into a compelling story uh was something that was inspiring to me so sometimes i would you know watch uh performances of henry v or richard iii or something like that and then i would say i wish that i could bring some of this into what i'm doing even though i know it's nowhere on the same level <laughs> but at the same time uh it was something that was inspiring to me while i was writing so and you have well, more novels planned well there are going to be two more in this series that cover the remaining events in her life and truthfully i think the next two novels will probably be more exciting in certain ways because they're the parts of her life that historians usually uh, will devote more attention to covering those periods. For instance, not to give too many spoilers, but she was the first woman who ever made a claim to the throne of England in her own right. And she fought a civil war with her cousin for 10 years uh, over who was going to be in charge of England. So that was obviously a very dramatic period in her life. And most people who write about her, whether the few people who have written fiction about her or the many more people who have written nonfiction will start 
in the middle of her life when all of that is happening, because that's what's interesting to them as British historians is what she did in England. But I think that if you're really going to evaluate her events during that period, you have to know everything that happened up to that point in her life. And she had already been through uh, controversies and tragedies, and she'd been through so much before she ever came to that period. I was hoping that if I gave the story of her whole life, by the time I got to that point, that usually receives more attention, people would start to see how she had become the person that she was at that period in time mm. and how it might have influenced her decision making and helped to explain some things that otherwise we kind of puzzle over. Why did she do this or that? Maybe it was because of all the experiences she had had before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you certainly do that. I mean, this book is a page turner in its own right, but uh, it also makes me very curious to learn more about her later years as this is, as you said, just the first 18 years of her life that are so fascinating. Last question, which do you prefer or which do you think is is easier or more difficult or more enjoyable to write, fiction or theology? Oh, my goodness. Theology is so much easier than writing novels. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so much easier. And that's not to say that it's easy. It's certainly uh the theology that I'm writing is not on the level of what, you know, Michael Horton or someone like that is writing, but it, I feel like what I'm working with the biblical text is something I've been reading my whole life. I'm very familiar with it. For this book, I basically came to it knowing very little about the time period, and I had to become an expert in the 12th century, which is something that I'd never studied before. So, It is a lot more work, and I feel like for every page that I write on my novel, there's a few hours of research that are behind that at times, whereas sometimes it's nice to write something for my blog and just literally sit down and write it, and, you know, Mm -hmm. within a couple hours, it's done. Uh, But at the same time, uh, it makes it that much more rewarding when you know everything that's gone into every page of a book. Mm -hmm. It's nice to have that finished product and feel like maybe it wasn't, 100% what I hoped it would be, but it was at least mostly what I hoped it would be. So that's good. Well, thanks so much for interviewing with us today, Amy. One thing I noticed while reading about Maud is after coming to know you a little bit online and and through phone conversations, I definitely sense a little bit of the Mantravati wittiness (laughs) and resolve in the voice of Maud. So I really appreciated. Um, knowing you a little bit, too, as I was reading about Maud. I felt a connection there. Um, and, and really, the only bad thing I can say about Amy is that she spells her name wrong. Other than that, I found her to be very wonderful, pleasant. We, we should add that her name behind the scenes of the podcast is Evil Amy the Less. <laughs> evil Amy the Greater. I think she's Evil Amy the Greater, but, I, you know. I think we're both oh, no, equally no. evil. But I'm, <laughs> I, mean, I thought you were the same person until about half an hour ago. <laughs> Uh, no, I could never pull all that off. But True, well, true. You're not that talented. I'm not that talented <laughs> at all. You're right. I'll, I'll agree with you on that one. Well, thanks to the listeners today as well. I hope that you will get yourself a copy of Amy's book, The Girl Empress, The Chronicle of Maud, Volume 1. We look forward to Volume 2 coming out. And also you can check out Amy's writing about theology on her blog, amymontravati.com. She also writes for the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals on occasion. And if you could cruise over to our website, mortificationofspin.org, you can enter to win one of our new posters for the Christmas season. 
And while you're over there, if you care to leave a donation for the Alliance, that would be greatly appreciated as well. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Let me be your Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. To read more on hard-hitting topics like this, visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. Well, in spite of all of the demands that Amy places upon our budget, What with her Lexus lease and all of the specialty chocolates and the strawberries that we have to supply every time we record, we actually have a very modest budget, and it's supplied by a group of faithful supporters, a small group. So if you would be willing to join that group of supporters, we would love to have your support. So please visit our website, mortificationofspin.org, to make a donation. It is the gifts that you make that enable us be a strong and independent voice in the contemporary church. And we hope that you find value in Mortification of Spin and the work that we're doing here. So again, please consider giving support and we are certainly thankful for that.